Hi, welcome to Botany Life. My name's Brad. <laughs> Excellent. So we are sitting in circles today, and if you are watching this online, then this is a very different layout than we normally do it. And the reason we're doing it this way today is because of the subject nature we're talking about in this message. Uh, we are in a series that we've been uh, calling Prayer on the Journey. Whoop, there we go, Prayer on the Journey, which is a walk through what we're calling the Pilgrim Psalms. So in the Old Testament book of Psalms, which is 150 songs of ancient Israel, there's a smaller collection called the Songs of Ascent, or the Pilgrim Psalms. And these are 15 songs that were sung as the pilgrims journeyed up from all over Israel to Jerusalem, to the capital city, to worship God and celebrate the great festivals of Israel. And these 15 songs were used during those pilgrims as they journeyed to sing together and prepare their hearts to worship God at these festivals. Through the centuries, these have become prayers that people, God's people, have prayed because they fit different seasons of life. In the same way that they would sing about these different themes, these themes speak to issues more broadly of life. And so we've been journeying together for these last three, almost four months together, walking through these songs. And we're almost at the end. Today is our second to last Pilgrim Psalm. Next week, we'll finish it off with a psalm of praise and kind of celebrate this journey we've been on. Today, though, we're in the second to last of the Pilgrim Psalms, which is Psalm 133. And if you've got a Bible, I would love you to come and have a look at this little psalm. It's only three verses long. But if you've got a paper Bible, if you've got a phone with a Bible app on it, if you've got an iPad with you, whatever works for you, I'd love you to come and have a look at the psalm, Psalm 133. Because this psalm is a psalm about the unity of God's people. It's a psalm that becomes a prayer when, as we've titled this one, it's a prayer when relationships are good. This is the kind of prayer that you pray in thanks to God when relationships are good and everything is healthy in life and when there's tremendous unity in family and in teams and in work and in, with friends. Life is just good because relationships are whole and good and peaceful. And that's what the psalm is celebrating and that's why we're seated like this today. We wanted to celebrate the sense of unity that we have as a church because that's what the psalm is about. And so rather than all sitting facing one way, we thought we would celebrate today by actually sitting in circles so that we're looking across at each other and grinning at each other and giving each other little waves if you want to, all right? Just, you know, looking across and snapping your fingers if the person over here is snoozing during my sermon, you can do that as well. What this is doing is just trying to give the sense of we are God's people together. And there's this tremendous sense of unity that we share together, which is why we've seated this way. So Psalm 133, it's a simple little psalm which just does three very simple moves. It begins with a declaration in verse 1. Declaration in verse 1 simply says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's stating a fact. It's declaring something that is true. It's a good thing when people are united together. And you only have had to experience the opposite of that to know that that statement is a truism. If you have ever experienced a breakdown of relationship, then you know how good and pleasant it is when people actually dwell in unity. If you've ever had a falling out with a friend, if you've ever been in a work uh, environment that has somehow turned toxic and nasty and lost that sense of teamwork, 
If you've ever been part of a family, either an immediate family or a wider family, where there's dysfunction and infighting and bickering between family members, then you know that this statement is true, how good and pleasant it is when there is unity. If you've ever played in a sports team where there's been a lack of unity and not a sense of we're all in this together as a team, if you've ever been part of a church that's gone through a split or had a major squabble and had people leaving in disgust, then you know that this is true. The psalm is simply celebrating something we know is true, and generally we notice this more when it's not present than when it is present. We know when thing, there is disunity. We know when there's dysfunction. We immediately feel the tension and the hardship when relationships are out of sync. But it's often something we don't notice as much when things are good. When we're experiencing unity, when relationships are flying, we often just take that for granted and don't really notice that and stop to celebrate that until things turn to custard again. And yet this is a beautiful thing, and that's what the psalm is celebrating. This is the basic idea and declaration of the psalm, that unity is a precious commodity. I remember a work situation that I had a number of years ago that had got so toxic uh, with one particular colleague that I worked with. I used to drive into the car park at the start of a working day, not sure whether or not he would be in that day or whether he'd be out on the road. And I remember still the feeling in the pit of my stomach where my heart had sunk if his car was parked in that car park. Whereas the days when his car was not there and he was out on the road somewhere, I remember the sense of relief that maybe today would not be a bad day. It's just not a neat environment to be in. It's not a healthy place to be. And that's what this psalm is actually trying to help us see. It is a good and pleasant thing when people are together in unity, when relationships are good, when there's a sense of team, when there's a sense of togetherness. I want you to notice there's two key words that the psalm uses to describe how good unity is, to describe how precious it is. The first word there is good. That word is used a lot of times in the Bible, but the place it first comes up is right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. If you're familiar with the creation story, you may remember that God creates everything that is in Genesis chapter 1, and it's split up into these six days of creation, and at the end of each day of creation, when God has made the next part or the next stage in creation, each day ends with this statement, and God saw that it was good. That word good is the same word that the psalm is using, and it's an objective fact. That's the idea behind this. God looked at what he'd created that day, and he saw that it was a good day. It was uh, objectively what he had made was really good. It was fantastic. It was of the highest quality. So this is a word that describes something that is true, that is simply good. And that's what this psalm is saying. Unity, when there's relationships, when there's community, when people are functioning well together, that is a good thing. In fact, it's interesting in Genesis, when you go through that, that opening creation story where it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. That's the description of creation until you come to Genesis 2. And in the second creation story, which is more about the creation of humanity, the man and the woman, you get this jarring moment all of a sudden. where having said all these things are good and good and good and good. The writer of Genesis says, but it was not good. 
something in creation before sin, something was out of sync, something was not good. And what was not good was that the man was alone. And it was in response to that aloneness that God made the woman because human beings are created for community. And marriage is one key way that God has created to meet our need for relationship. But there are others. There are church, there is family, there is um, friendships together. And it's fascinating that that same word that described the goodness of creation and the not goodness of being alone is now what's used here to describe how good it is when people live together in unity. And whether that's a church, whether that's a marriage relationship, whether that's a family, whether that's a team at work, whether that's a sports team, doesn't matter. It's a, it's a truism. It's true regardless. It is good when people dwell together in unity. The second word that goes with it is the, what the NIV translates at pleasant. And actually what happens is a few times in the Bible, these two words get put together. So Genesis 49 is a blessing where Jacob's blessing each of his sons, and he blesses one of them and says, the land that you're going to live in is going to be good and pleasant. So how good his, his resting place, how pleasant is his land, it's going to be so good that he's going to make an effort to make it work. And those two words have gone together, same as Psalm 147, describing worship of God. It's good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant uh, to praise him. But, and pleasant, whereas good describes the subjective truth, it's good. Pleasant, this word that goes with it, describes it, the feeling that goes with it, the subjective sense. In other words, it's a good thing when there's unity, and you know what? We feel better as well. It's both good and pleasant. It's objectively true, and it's subjectively so much nicer to live in a marriage where husband and wife are on the same page, and in a family where there's not bickering and disharmony, and in a church where there's not disunity, and in a work environment where colleagues aren't each other's back. That's, that's what the psalm is saying. It is both good objectively, and it's both pleasant and delightful subjectively when there is unity between people. It's a real simple psalm, to be honest. In fact, this is really the big idea of it. God highly values unity. That's just the bottom line. That's what this declaration in verse 1 is saying right up front. God highly values unity. For God, this is a big deal. It's something that he is committed to. And that's what the psalm is celebrating and calling us to to live up to the same ideal that God has for unity in churches and unity in marriages and unity in families and unity in work environments and unity in friendships. That's what God longs for. <clears throat> the unity of God's people is a key theme through the Bible. If you notice the heading of the psalm, this is a psalm of David. And while the headings aren't necessarily inspired, which is why they're in a smaller font in our Bibles, I think you can, we can take them as read, that they are probably bang on. So this is a psalm according to the heading of David. And most scholars think that David probably wrote this psalm right after he'd been crowned king of all Israel. I talked a, bit, a little bit about David's story last week when we looked at Psalm 132. But David had been a shepherd boy when he was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. The, prophet was, the, the problem was sorry, that the first king of Israel, Saul, was still on the throne. But he had, uh, God had chosen to reject Saul because of his disobedience, and so he had anointed David to be the next king. 
And David, uh, having been anointed, the Spirit of God came on him. He became a mighty warrior. He defeated the great Philistine champion, Goliath. He became a general in Saul's army. And slowly his fame spread. He ended up marrying Saul's daughter. But his fame spread to the point that his father-in-law became jealous. And Saul tried to kill him. And so David had to go on the run for his life. And he became a fugitive from Saul, probably for more than a decade. He was joined by a a bunch of other people who were fugitives, and it almost became an ancient version of Robin Hood and his merry men, except they were being hunted by the king. And for probably more than a decade, King Saul hunted after David to try and kill him so that the throne could be passed on to Saul's own son. But it didn't happen, and Saul and all but one of his boys got killed in a battle with the Philistines after a, a decade or more of this. David's tribe, because there were 12 tribes in Israel, David's tribe, the tribe of Judah, anointed him as king immediately. But the other 11 tribes didn't. Instead, they went with Saul's final remaining son, and they crowned him king. So suddenly now God's people were divided. They were split. And for the next seven years, there was civil war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And for seven years... The nation of Israel was split in civil war along tribal lines that became part of the tribal fracture that would come out later in a divided kingdom again until finally Saul's last remaining son was assassinated by some of his officials. And then the rest of the tribes then realized, actually David is the one true king. And they came to him at the town, the capital he was ruling Judah from, called Hebron. And it says all Israel came and anointed David as king. I tell you that story because most scholars believe this psalm, if it was indeed written by David, was written in the aftermath of his crown. When finally, after seven years of bloody civil war, the nation was one again. And all of God's people had now come together under his rulership and his kingship. And this is a celebration. After seven years of Israelite soldiers killing Israelite soldiers, of brothers and cousins facing each other across a battlefield. Finally, Israel's won again. And David probably wrote this psalm to say, it is good and it is pleasant when God's people live in unity. The civil war is behind us. What's fascinating is that the pilgrim psalms were not collected during David's reign. Some of them date far later than David. So while he wrote this psalm celebrating unity in his day, Whenever these 15 psalms were put together as a collection centuries later, they were put together then, and again, this call to unity was something special. Because these 15 psalms were pulled together and made a collection. This is what we'll sing as we go to pilgrimage. And again, it was this environment where God's unity of God's people was imperative. Because as we've talked about through these pilgrim psalms, these are the psalms that people are singing as they're journeying together up to Jerusalem to worship him. People from the tribe of Simeon to the south and and Issachar to the north and and the people of Manasseh across the Jordan River. All these Israelite people are coming from all over the land to Jerusalem to worship. And these last couple of pilgrim psalms are the psalms they sung in Jerusalem. So this song was probably being sung when everyone had arrived in Jerusalem. And they're all there, all the different tribes from all over the land. They've all come together. They're all ready to worship God. And as they gather, they sing this song. 
how good it is, how pleasant it is for God's people to live in unity. It's a celebration that they've come under God to worship him together. But the ideal of this unity is not only an Old Testament concept, it also goes into the New Testament. Jesus, the night before he was betrayed, he prayed for his disciples as he was going to the cross. And in having prayed for his disciples, he prayed for you and me. None of you actually ever stopped to think about that, but the night before he died for my sins and yours, Jesus prayed for us, and he thought about us, and this is what he prayed. My prayer is not for them alone, for just my immediate disciples. Jesus said, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. He said, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I've given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you love me. See what Jesus says? The thing on Jesus' heart as he goes to the cross was that those who would choose to follow him and trust in him would be one, would come to, notice the words, complete unity. That's the heart of Jesus the night before he died. And then when the the church begins after he's risen again and goes back to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born, look at how it's described in Acts 2 and Acts 4. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer and all the believers were together. There's unity. They had everything in common. They were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. That's what the early church was like. It was living out the prayer and the dream of Jesus. And then later you get into the letters that the early church leaders would write, and Paul would write these words, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bear with each other in love. Look at this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. All the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, from beginning to end, the unity of God's people is a big deal. And that's what this psalm is celebrating. God greatly values unity. And if God greatly values unity, then we need to as well. So having made this declaration, which is really what this little psalm is all about, Psalm 133, the psalmist David then illustrates this principle using two key ideas, verses two and three, or the first part of verse three. Verse two says, it is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Verse three, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. These are, these are two metaphors that would have been really rich and meaningful for the original audience. To be honest, they're kind of lost on us. I don't get that excited about them, to be fair. But for the original audience, they were very special. The first metaphor was about the priest Aaron. Back in the time of the Exodus, God commanded the people to build an Ark of the Covenant where the law was put. They had to build a portable tent of worship called the Tabernacle, and they had to make it to the exact specifications God gave them, and they had to set apart Moses' brother Aaron and his descendants were to be the priests, and they had to make the special garments exactly to order, And as part of that, they were commanded to make a special oil. It was an oil that would be used to dedicate the tabernacle 
and to anoint the high priest, Aaron, and his descendants from then on. It was not an oil that was to be used for everyday life. It was not an oil to be used for everyday cooking. No one was allowed to get the recipe of the special oil and use it to do the cook the lamb that night. That was not what it was for. It was a special oil, and the recipe was given by God for the anointing of the priest. And there came the day in Leviticus 8 where they get they dress Aaron and his sons as the priests of Israel, and they anoint them with the special oil, and they are now the priests of God. And the idea of this, because remember, this is illustrating the point, the declaration of verse 1, which is that unity is precious. It's saying unity is as precious as that special sacred oil that was used to anoint the priests. There's a sacredness to unity. That's a God-given blessing that's incredibly sacred and special and holy to him. The second image is uh, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is in the north of Israel. It's one of the highest points in, in the entire land. And because it's so tall, it generally has snow on it pretty much the whole year. And during the, the dry season when there's very little rain, it has heavy dew every night settling on it because it is so high. It is probably the best place if you want to be saturated in the morning if you've slept outside in a sleeping bag. This is the place to do it. Because if you sleep outside without a tent, you're going to be smothered with dew by the morning. But in a land that is dry for many months of the year, it's the dew that keeps things green and fresh and growing. The dew is life-giving. And so the second illustration is saying that unity among God's people is so precious not only because it's sacred, like the anointing oil of Aaron, but because it is life-giving like the dew of Hermon. And the imagery is as though the whole land was being saturated all the way to Mount Zion in the south from the dew of Hermon. It's this all-encompassing, all-embracing unity, this blessing of God that's going throughout the land, just as the oil goes all over Aaron's hair and beard and garments. And what these two illustrations are trying to underline for these people for whom that would have been so significant is underline the main point. You know, they didn't have word processes. They couldn't make a point and then underline it or bold it or highlight it in yellow. So that's what these illustrations are doing. They're simply trying to underline the declaration of verse 1. Unity is incredibly precious. And it's greatly valued by God. The final line, though, takes it one step further. The final line is what just takes this point slightly further than the rest of the psalm. And yet these are the, what's two lines actually in parallel, these are the two lines that actually get missed by most people. They kind of get really forgotten, and yet I think they're saying something incredibly important. If you've got your Bible open, look at the last two lines of verse 3. For there the Lord, which is God's name, Yahweh, for there Yahweh bestows his blessing even life forevermore. So here's the question to ask. Where is there? You notice that? There, Yahweh bestows his blessing. Well, where's there? Where's the place where Yahweh bestows his blessing, even life forevermore? Well, if you just go back to the previous line, it seems to be referring back to Mount Zion. It's just talked about Mount Zion in the previous line, It is like the dew of Hermon falling even onto Mount Zion, for there Yahweh bestows his blessing. So it seems as though this final little line is saying it is in Mount Zion 
that God brings his blessing of unity on his people. So what does that mean? Is it because that was a particularly special place? What kind of? Because that's Mount Zion was the hill in Jerusalem where they'd built the, uh, where the, they'd built the tabernacle, sorry, built the temple in Solomon's reign. That was the place where they'd go to worship God, where the ark was. But the idea here, I think, is as God's, when God's people come together in David's reign to anoint him as king, and when as God's people come together on these pilgrimages as they're journeying to Jerusalem to worship together, the place where they find their unity is the place they've come to worship God. So in other words, the key ingredient that brings unity is God himself. The people are most unified, the people are most together in worship. It's when they come together as the people of God and they're ready to worship him. It's as they come to the, 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 the temple or the tabernacle to celebrate the festivals and to live out the story of their heritage and to celebrate that this great God who brought them out from the land of Egypt centuries ago is still their God and they can still trust him. It says as they come and they celebrate him and worship him afresh, that's where they find their unity. The nation of Israel was most united when they were worshipping together. And if it was true that Israel was most united under God, that is even more true for the church today. Because our unity is found in Jesus and what he's done for us. There is an incredibly profound passage in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2. The first part of Ephesians chapter 2 is about God's incredibly uh, gracious saving of us. Ephesians 2 is where we read the words that we were dead in our sin, but now we've been made alive in Christ. Where we are saved by grace. It is not of our works. It's nothing we can boast about. We are saved by his grace. It is simply through faith. Then the second half of Ephesians 2 then goes on to celebrate not only our individual salvation if we've trusted in Jesus, but corporately what God's done for all of us as a community. And it works the same way as the first half of the chapter, which describes this is what you used to be, but now this is what you are in God, in Christ. So Paul now talking about the church altogether says, remember, formerly you were who... You who were Gentiles by birth, so non-Jews, formerly, he says, you were separate from Israel. You were excluded from citizenship, sorry, separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Five key ways we were far away from God, basically, if we were not Jews. Then he says, but now. It's the same hinge as the first half of the chapter. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, which is me and everyone else of you who aren't Jewish, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on to say these words. For he himself, Jesus, he is our peace. He has made the two groups one. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. 
Paul is talking about is the ancient centuries-old division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had God, they had the law, they had the temple worship, they had everything. Gentiles were far away from God, utterly separate. And what this passage is saying is that in Jesus, that division is gone. What God has done is he has taken Jews and he has taken Gentiles and he has made the two one in the church. So that now everyone who calls on the name of Jesus, everyone who trusts in Jesus, is brought into what Paul describes in that fourth line as one new humanity. It's like the church is the new human race, where no matter who you are, no matter what language you speak, no matter what ethnicity you come from, no matter what your heritage is or your skin color, you are now part of this one new humanity called the church. And that's where he's united us. So God hasn't only saved us in his grace from our sins, which is the first half of Ephesians 2, he has saved us from our isolation and separation and disunity because he's brought all of us together in his new family called the church. And we are this one new humanity. And if it was true for Israel back in the time where the psalm was written, that their unity was found as they came to worship God because God brought them together. It's even more true for us because in the church, Jesus unites all of us together. We all come to the cross. We all find salvation by grace alone. And he unites all of us from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the cross. That's why if you were with us last year in our Panorama series, when we were going through the story of the church in the book of Acts, we came to the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch was a very special church in in the city that was to the north of the land of Israel. Because in the church at Antioch, for the first time, Jews and Gentiles started hanging out and worshiping God in their services together. For the first time, Jews and Gentiles started eating meals together. For the first time, Jews and Gentiles served together in church leadership. For the first time, a local church was multi-ethnic. And that's why the church at Antioch was the first place where, God's, where Jesus' followers were called Christians. And they were called Christians by the non-Christians in Antioch. Because people outside of the church were looking in on this gathering of people. And now, for the first time ever in their life, they were seeing Jews and Gentiles hanging out and eating kosher burgers together. And Jews and Gentiles sitting down and, um, and having community groups together. And Jews and Gentiles uh, heading off to the movies together. And Jews and Gentiles helping each other move house. And the, the people outside of the church community, Antioch, looked in and said, what on earth is going on here? What has brought these people together who never, ever get together? And they termed, coined a new phrase. They're Christians. They're Christ's ones. Because the only basis for this unity that these outsiders could see was the person of Jesus. That's who brought them together. And that's the unity of the church. And that is what is being celebrated in this beautiful psalm. Unity is incredibly precious. It is a sacred and life-giving thing that comes blessing from God. And it only comes from God. And for us, it only comes through Jesus. 
the one who died for all our sins. And as we come to him in faith at the foot of the cross, we find each other there. And we find we've all been adopted as sons and daughters. And we're all part of the same family. And what God says in his word is that unity is incredible. God greatly values unity. And therefore, so should we. If you've missed it, and you've been around Botany Life for a while, this is a big deal for us. That two of our church values explicitly stand on this idea. The first one is the, the value that says we do life together. Look at what it says. God's brought us together as family. We are therefore, as a church, we are committed to maintaining unity. We are committed to building strong, authentic relationships with each other. Because that's what it means to be the church. That's what unity means. It means we are committed to each other and we do life together. The second key value that impacts for our church is that around this value we call one walk or one direction, which is about our leadership in particular. But again, strong, united leadership made up of godly servant leaders is core to our stability. And one of the key things in the 13 years of our history as a church is the unity that we have shared has started with the leadership of our church and a commitment that we are going to live out the principle of Psalm 133. See, it's one of the passages that goes with this value because we want to live this out because unity is incredibly precious to God. And if it's precious to him, then it has to be precious to us. God greatly values unity, and so should we. As we finish up this morning then, I want to suggest five key applications for each of us. If this is true, and if this is how God feels about the unity, now speaking about us as a local church, if God greatly values unity here, then we need to. So how do we need to really take on and live out this commitment to unity. I want to suggest five ways very quickly as we finish. Number one, we need to work hard to maintain unity as God's people. This is hard work. Because we are selfish, sinful people, and while we are new creatures in Christ and, and God is changing us by his spirit and transforming us, we're still broken and still sinful, and it means our tendency is towards disunity. Our tendency is towards selfishness. Our tendency is away from each other, which means we have to work hard to commit to each other. I want to give a verse to each of these applications, and this one is that verse that I've already used earlier from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is hard work. And what Paul says is, this is so valuable that we have to make every effort to do that. In fact, I would argue that the rest of what comes in, in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians is living out this principle. We're to put off our old way of living and put on a new way of living. We're to put off deceit and off foul language and off negative talk. We're to put on um, wholesome speech, where to put on encouragement, where to put on forgiveness. It's all about maintaining unity. And we have to make every effort. We have to work hard to ensure 
that if there's disunity, if there's the hint of trouble, if there's the hint of a falling out with someone else or a misunderstanding, we have got to work hard to fix that and to sort that out. Second application, if we're going to be committed, if we're going to greatly value unity as God does, we have to accept one another graciously and forgive each other freely. Accept one another graciously and forgive each other freely. I love Colossians 3 as one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Bear with each other. Out of all of the one another commands in the Bible, this is one of my all-time favorites. Bear with each other. Why does Paul say that? Honestly, because you're a little bit annoying. Seriously. That's why Paul commands it. If you weren't slightly annoying and every now and then got on my wick, I wouldn't need to be commanded to bear with one another. But, and this, I, this is a surprise to many of you, but I'm occasionally annoying. I know, I know, Mark's surprised to hear that after working with me for more than a decade, but I, I can be. <laughs> and that's why we're commanded in the Bible, bear with each other. Put up with each other. The stuff that annoys you, the stuff that ticks you off, the annoying little things that we do to each other in the church, in families, in marriage. Paul says, bear with each other. Put up with that. Accept each other graciously for who we are. That doesn't make excuses for sin. That doesn't mean don't deal with stuff that needs to be dealt with. It means don't have hard conversations. But it means sometimes you've just got to be gracious with people. And not only that, but we have to forgive one another. If you've got a grievance against someone, Paul says, we are commanded as followers of Jesus to forgive. That's a big call for some of us, isn't it? If you've been through stuff in your life, if you've been desperately hurt by people you trusted, you've been let down by people who made promises or vows to you, You've, had been, you've been stabbed in the back by someone that you trusted with your life. It is a very hard place to get to, to forgive. But that's a key part of unity. And the standard, according to Colossians 3, is that we forgive to the same degree and extent as the Lord's forgiven us. It doesn't mean, by the way, that every relationship can be reconciled. It doesn't mean that you ever get back to a position of trust again. But you do need to be able to come to the point where on the basis of all that you have been forgiven, you're able to turn to someone else and extend forgiveness to them. That's what unity is about. Working hard, accepting and forgiving. Third application, it means if we... Value unity as much as God does means we seek to mend broken relationships to the best of our ability. If you know that you have a, a relationship with someone else in the church that is broken, whether it's within our church or whether it's in the, in the wider church, then to the best of your ability, it is your responsibility to make an effort to fix it. It doesn't actually matter whether... It was your fault or their fault or most probably both faults. If you know there's a problem, you have to take the initiative. That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're offering your gift at the altar, if you are worshipping God 
And remember in the middle of that, that your brother or sister has something against you. Jesus said, this is so important. Leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to them and then come back and offer your gift. In other words, if you're in the middle of a service and you're singing 10,000 reasons and then you suddenly realize as you look across the room in this weird setup that someone across the other side of the circle has got a problem with you or you've got a problem with them. What Jesus is saying is stop singing, get out of your chair, go around the other side, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then finish the song. We probably won't wait for you. We'll carry on. But what Jesus is saying is this is so important. It is more important that you mend the relationship than it is that you worship me. It's more important that we get this sorted now. And notice this. He says, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, if it comes to your mind, then you take the initiative to get this thing fixed. If we're committed to unity, then we have to be committed to mending broken relationships. Now, there needs to be a caveat to that. That does not mean that that relationship may ever be go back to what it was. It may be now that trust has been broken and that it will never be the friendship it was and it may never be the relationship it was. You may never be fully reconciled that way, but you still need to do what you can to mend that. And I love this passage from Romans 12. Um, In the context of being devoted to one another and honoring one another, Paul says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The fact is that you can try and mend a relationship with someone who doesn't want to know. Or you can reach out to someone to fix something that is broken and they push you away. Or say, say even worse things. And there may come a point where you just go, I've done all I can. I've done the best I can. You know, my conscience before God is clear that as far as it depends on me, I've tried to live at peace. I've tried to reconcile. And if that person doesn't, then you, you, don't, you don't have anything else to do. You're free. And if that's your situation, if you've tried to, to mend a relationship with someone and they've shut the door, then, then your conscience can be clear if you've done everything you can do to mend that. Since God greatly values community uh, unity, and so should we, then one way we, we do that is that we commit to living in community with each other. That means we make the effort to build strong relationships together. That's why um, part of this value of we do life together, the final sentence of this says, therefore we place a high value on small groups in our church. Our community groups are integral to building relationships together. Because in a church of 400 people or so, you can't do community particularly well in a big setting like this. We need to build relationships with each other, exactly the way that the early church did in Acts chapter 2. They continued to meet in the temple courts, which could take thousands, but they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There has to be a commitment to connecting together. And there's been a few people who have left Botany Life over the last few years and have said to us, we enjoy the church, but we don't feel connected. You know what my question now is? Have you been in a community group? 
every single person that I have thought about who has left with those words ringing in the last few years when I've asked them, are you in a community group? Their answer has been no. It's hard to feel connected if you're not in a group. And so if you value unity and community the way God does, can I encourage you to connect with a group? It may be difficult to do that now. We're mid-October. Some groups are going to be winding up in the next month or so. But can I encourage you as we launch next year, if you are not in a group, to engage in a group and to connect and to build unity and community together. Final one. If we are going to highly value community the way that God does, then that means we celebrate the unity we share in Jesus across all boundaries. Across ethnic boundaries, language boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, we become a welcoming church that celebrates every person who walks in the door. And if you're visiting today, we want you to know you're welcome. That's the kind of church we want to be. A church that celebrates the diversity and the beauty of the kaleidoscope that is the body of Christ. That's what it's about. I love this terminology of Revelation 7. This picture of heaven, of this great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language. And I am convinced more than ever that that is what the local church is meant to exhibit as well. That that's who we're meant to be as far as our local community allows us to do that. But if the, the worldwide global church is every tribe, every nation, every people group, then that's what local churches should be if we're able to. And we welcome that and we celebrate that and we enjoy that. I just want to ask you to just take a minute and look through that list. And I just simply want to ask you to just stop and ask this question, how committed am I to unity? Do I value the unity of God's people as highly as God does? Because if we say yes to that question, then we should be able to look down that list and say, I'm living all of those. And if you're not, if there's brokenness in relationships, if there's unforgiveness in your heart, if there's difficulty accepting others or reaching across ethnic boundaries, for example, and welcoming because of some insipid racism in the heart, if there's a laziness about welcoming and accepting and maintaining unity, then we need to own that. And we need to repent of that. And we need to commit to unity. Because that's what God wants us to do. I want to give you just a few seconds to consider that and then just to talk to God about it. And then I want to pray. So I'm just going to give you just a few seconds to consider that list and then talk to God. Jesus, I want to say thank you for this beautiful psalm. So simple, really, in what it 
proclaims that unity among your people is good and pleasant. It is objectively a great thing. And it just feels better for us when our relationships are good. Lord, the truth is, though, that many of our relationships are broken. Many of us carry hurt and pain and at times unforgiveness and bitterness because of things that have been done to us. God, so often families break apart, churches split, friendships break. And we'd like to think that it's other people, but generally we bear a portion of that at least. We can be so selfish. We can be so self-centered. It's so hard for us to look at things from someone else's point of view instead of ours. But God, we are challenged today by your word about how much you value unity among your people. That Jesus would choose to pray for that as he goes to the cross. God, would you help us as a church to be that committed to unity as well, the way our values say. But Lord, I want to pray for the wider church too. I want to pray for all of the churches in our community here that you would help us remove any sense of competitiveness and create a sense of unity among us as different outposts of your kingdom. And I pray for that for the church worldwide. But I also pray for each of us individually, God. Would you remove bitterness? Would you remove self-centeredness? Would you heal wounds and hurts? Would you help us to take the initiative when we have to to restore a broken relationship? Would you help us to be committed, as committed to unity as you are? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. God greatly values unity.